and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Lint from Dear Author and a woman named Elle. Elle emailed us a little while ago. She works for the FBI, and she had a lot to say about accuracy of the portrayals of FBI agents in romance novels. So, of course, we begged her to do an interview, and I hope you find this as fascinating as we did. We talk about FBI roles, the different purposes of different offices. We give her some Regency recommendations. It's a pretty good conversation. This podcast is brought to you by New American Library, publisher of Riding the Wave, Lorelai Brown's sexy new Pacific Blue novel on sale now. Music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I'll have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is and where you can buy it. I want to thank those of you who have emailed us with your recommendations for young readers. They're awesome. Keep them coming. We're going to start building that podcast very soon. There are going to be some really happy young readers in the world when we're done. And now, on with the podcast with me, Jane, and Elle. So you work for the FBI. Correct. And you've asked that we refer to you as L, which is totally cool. Can you tell us a little bit about the capacity in which you work in the FBI? Yes, I uh, have been with the FBI for about nine years now. I've had two different jobs with the FBI. Um, the first one I will choose not to speak about. The second one, I am an analyst for the FBI. I'm what is called a support employee. I am not an agent. I do not carry a gun. That was the first question my mother asked me when I told her I was going to go work for the FBI. <laughs> do you know Fox Mulder? I do not. And Mulder. I don't know where the X-Files are. <laughs> what about that big-ass basement in the end of, um, at the end of Indiana Jones where they put the, the Ark of the Covenant and all that other weird crap? Do you know where that warehouse is? I, I know we have some warehouses in different <laughs> places, but I don't know if the Ark is there or not. Your capacity as an analyst... Can you talk about some of the things that you do? Like, what does that mean? I mostly work national security matters, so I don't, I choose not to talk about specifics. I do a lot of reading, a lot of looking through data, and a lot of talking. I brief a lot to people, so I talk in front of groups of people, including executive management. You know, being a reader and being a former, being a history major and liking current events, this job fits me very well. So I'm guessing that reading Julie James isn't the type of reading you're referring to? No, it's not. <laughs> some of it's very dry. Some of it's very interesting. It just all depends upon the uh, intelligence that I'm reading. Initially, you contacted us because you wanted to talk about accuracy and representing the FBI in romance fiction. And in the beginning, you had talked about how some of Julie James's novels were like really bothersome and little inaccuracies, although you did say that the latest one was much, much more accurate and that you, you enjoyed it. Is that right? That is correct. Um, I understand currently she has an FBI agent in Chicago as her technical consultant. She actually did an interview with him on her blog that was very interesting, and I believe that has helped uh, wear down some of the inaccuracies that some of the previous um, books had. Little things like the shoulder holsters wearing the, with agents wearing their weapons and shoulder holsters. No one wears a shoulder holster. Everyone, all males carry on their hip or their ankle and the females I know carry usually in their purse or a backpack. One of the things that you mentioned in, in an email to me was that your major issue with romance in general 
um, not just Julie James, but all of the romance that includes the FBI, it can be summed up by serial killers and violent crime. Absolutely. That, so you're saying that the FBI just isn't just about serial killers and violent crime and, and aliens? That is correct. I will be damned. If you look at our priorities, um, which are posted on our main website, crime, what you would call crime, is the fourth priority of the FBI. The first priority is counterterrorism. The second priority is counterintelligence. The third priority is cybercrimes and national security cyber issues. And the fourth priority is criminal. And actually violent crime and um, murder, etc., what ends up in a lot of books, not just romance novels, is like the fourth priority within the criminal priorities. White collar crime and civil uh, liberties, civil rights issues are much higher than the actual violent crime. But it's that's the easy thing for people to talk about because that's a lot of what is in the news and in the public because that's unclassified. A lot of our higher priorities only come out into the public uh, view when there's a case, when someone is arrested, um, when someone goes in for prosecution. So it's much easier, I think, for authors just to glean information on what's open to the public and we're much more open about ourselves and what we put out on even our website because those are things that are easy um, because of the classification level to give to the public. But it is frustrating because there are so many other things that we do and there would be so many interesting stories that could be told that I don't think people are looking for. And, you know, serial killers and violent crime is just not all it. One of the things that you mentioned in your email was, for example, the FBI support personnel that are in embassies and... Right the art theft team are they the ones that go after the works progress art that belongs to the federal government or are they dealing with private art theft or is it both they're dealing with both there is a art theft database and i don't deal with that much most of what i've read about it i've actually read about it on our you know website and different articles that come out every so often we'll we'll be able to gain a a painting back and for someone and there'll be a big presentation to give the painting or the sculpture or the Incan bowl that was stolen from a museum and then there was a Matisse or a Manet that we got back in Florida I think through the Miami office a year or two ago so you know, that's just, that's really a side job that has just something that we've had to develop because there is this international, you know, interest in, in art theft. I mean, you know, these things are worth billions of dollars sometimes, you know, if you get a really uh, important um, piece. And I saw that there was some, I saw that there was some news that they might be, ha they might have some leads on that uh, Boston yes. um, art theft, which has been a mystery for what, three decades now? I think it's uh, like two, 20 years, something like that. I Personally, I don't know this for a fact. I think they know who did it, but they just can't prove it. That's a personal opinion that is not, you know, that's just something being read from the outside. Um, that happens, you know, sometimes you, you, you basically know who did it, but you don't have the strong evidence that you could take to court 
um, to get a conviction, and we're probably not going to try to arrest someone if they cannot feel they cannot get a conviction. You were speaking about our um, legal attache offices. Every, not every embassy, many embassies, I believe we're in almost 80, 60 or 80 offices now around the world. Um, if there is a legal attache there, that person is an FBI agent. Um, and that goes back into the 1940s even when we had legal attaches in South America during World War II and had a lot to do with um, espionage during the war. And that program had just continues to grow as, you know, the world becomes more connected. We need to have representation to get help from other countries. I actually, have, I actually spent two months in one of our legal attache offices on a temporary duty, what we call a TDY four years ago almost, and it was a really interesting experience. I actually, one of my goals in my career is to go back permanently for a two to three year um, job in one of our embassies overseas. So I have two questions for you. One, what types of stories would you like to see involving the FBI? And two, how would authors go about becoming more accurate in their writing of uh, FBI agents? The first thing I would like to see is for authors to look beyond the FBI agents. They're great, don't get me wrong, they're the front lines in our organization. Our organization, I saw a figure this week, we have 34,000 employees. Only approximately 13 plus thousand of those are special agents. And they're great, don't get me wrong, but there are a bunch of us in the background who are supporting the mission of the FBI and we rarely get mentioned in fiction. I mean, I'm an analyst. We have, you know, linguists. We have people who do malware analysis. We have victim advocates. We have people who work with um, dogs, like doing explosive detection and cadaver dogs, photographers. We even have auto mechanics. I don't know if you would write them book about someone who is an auto mechanic, but people who do explosives analysis, you know, all these things um, that, that we help to support the mission of our organization and people go to the easy again, which is the agents because they're out there in the front. And don't get me wrong, I have good friends who are agents. I, you know, sit next to one who's a great guy, but, you know, there are those of us, you know, who do other things that as I said, and I, cool, kind of cool and interesting things also. Um, I think one way a, an author could get in more information is to most likely ask the FBI. Ask your local office. Um, we have 56 field offices all over the United States, and within those field offices, most of the field offices have what we call resident agencies, which are smaller offices, which are usually anywhere from five upwards number of people. And some of them are in very small cities across the United States. So I think authors could just contact the FBI. Um, talk to people, if you're in a place that has an FBI office, talk to people who might know FBI agents or people who work for the FBI to get some support. Also, um, there's an organization that is um, of retired FBI agents. They have an organization. I, to be honest, I'm sorry, I can't give you the name, but if you do a little research, I'm sure you could, an author could be able to find that. And those guys would be love to talk about their careers and women, you know, would love to talk about. Now, they might not be quite up to date if they've retired in a, 
uh, a while ago, but still they could give you a much better feel of, you know, our organization and what we do and how we do it and things that might be of interest for other types of stories. One of the things you also brought up was the, you don't really talk about what you do to people in your life. I don't. Is that part of your job responsibility or is that just self-preservation so you don't get a lot of questions you can't answer? A little bit of both. The previous job I had with the Bureau, it was a little bit more secret, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And so I got used to not speaking about my job. Mm -hmm. And part of it is preservation to not people not ask a lot of questions. Um, Mostly, again, it depends on who I'm speaking to. My friends and my my close friends and my family know I work for the FBI and they know I'm an analyst. But they do not know the subject matter I work. Mm-hmm. Some people do choose to share with their spouse or their kids or whatever their subject matter that they work. I have just chosen not to because it just it eliminates a lot of questions. And then when I'm in public and someone asks me what I do, I either say I work for the Bureau if I feel like it that day or I say <laughs> I work for the Department of Justice, <laughs> which is true. I do work for the Department of Justice underneath the F- FBI. So I'm really not lying. Usually that stops it because they think I'm an attorney or something for them and they don't want, you know, they don't, I'm sorry, Jay, but they don't want <laughs> So how long have you been a romance reader? I have been a romance reader on and off since I was probably about 12. I started with like Victoria Holt and moved on from there to maybe, I remember reading a Joanna Lindsay, one of the pirate ones, when I was about 13. That's like my first really true romance I remember reading. And then I moved on to Danielle Steele and a few others like that in the 80s because I'm 46, so Mm -hmm. I'll date myself here. And then in college, I kind of got away from it. And when I, I still was a reader, but not romance. And then when I got later out of college, one of the libraries where I moved um, had a lot of paperbacks. You could just take one or two and bring them back. And I slowly got back into starting with uh, Regencies, the old short Regencies, um, the Signet, um, Signet Regencies. And then sort of moved on from there and found a wonderful used bookstore. I'm in the type of person that even though I've gone mostly electronic now, I miss just going through used bookstores and just pulling out books. I would never go with like a list of books to buy. I would just wander through the used bookstore and pull off what I wanted. Um, So that's why... Finding really good things um, electronically is hard for me sometimes, so I do use review sites like in blogs like yours um, to help me give me some recommendations. I'm also somewhat a little bit cheap, I'll admit it, so I do get do a lot of the free or cheaper uh, things that um, for my Kindle. <laughs> totally <laughs> understandable. Uh, at least when I had the used books, I could take them back and get some credit. And, you know, with electronic, I can share them. And I've started sharing a few things with my sister because she just got a Kindle about six months ago. But our reading tastes aren't quite the same. Um, I have gotten her to read a few things, uh, but she's still not totally on board being a true romance reader. Um, and I can read upwards, you know, if it, and two or three books a week, probably. 
Nice. So, Elle, since you are a big fan, or I don't know if you still are a big fan of Signet Regencies, but do you um, remember the author Joan Smith? I don't. All right. Well, if you like those, um, she actually has quite a few out that were published through Bell. Oh, God. Bell, Bell Books? No, it wasn't Bell Books. There was, a, there was a publishing house early on. This is back in early fiction-wise days that was publishing... Um, Regency romances for authors whose rights, I assume, had reverted, like Joan Wolfe, for example, who is one of my favorite uh, Regency authors, and uh, Joan Smith wrote the, a couple really wonderful Signet Regencies, and they're very inexpensive. I want to say that they were, uh, they're like two ninety nine or they're under $3. I don't really know who owns that company right now or who has those books, but if you search the Dear Author archives for Joan Smith, we have done uh, several reviews for her. If you haven't read Joan Wolfe, I highly recommend those. There's a funny story behind Joan Wolfe uh, and Sarah. So uh, her husband emails me and he says, I, I want to buy a book for Sarah, but obviously... Um, <laughs> I know nothing of these novels, yes. And she buys all of her own books. So... I suggested that he buy her the book, the, Her Lordship's Mistress. Um, and he did. And my understanding, Sarah, was that you really enjoyed that book. Oh, it was wonderful. And I was completely floored that my husband had bought me a romance. And I, I was like, what, 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 how, did, how did you do this? Did you, like, close your eyes and point? He's like, no, I emailed Jane. I was like, oh, I can't wait to read it. It was so good. And, and I know what you mean about loving the classic Regencies, L, because... They are a true. They're very unique in the language and in the um, romantic and sexual tension. Like you might just get some intense hand holding, and that's all you get. And they are completely different, and they're so so good. Some of them. I find them very romantic. You know. Yes. Um, the the tension you're right is really through restrained um, glances, but they're also um, often driven by very witty dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, dialogue that often has more than one meaning. Just kind of everything around them uh, is is full of tension, like every interaction, because there's no physical expression. It has to be built through other ways. And, and I think that it almost takes more effort and craft to do that than to rely on, you know, the, the characters thinking lusty thoughts about each other. Yes, I like her eyes and her breasts are amazing. Like there's no there's there's no like openly checking out someone's bum in a, in a Regency. Is the publisher you were looking for Belgrave? Belgrave and Regency Reads? Yes, yes, that's exactly yes, they it. They have a ton of classic Regencies as I call them. Um, and the, the covers are not always optimal, but if you're reading digitally, you don't see them anyway. They have a very very large selection and they're not that expensive at all. And we, we apologize to all of the time that you are going to lose now that we have made this recommendation for you. Recommendations are awesome because, as I said, it, it's sometimes hard because there's just so many things out there now. And I'm pretty specific in my taste. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't care for some of the subgenres. I don't get into the vampires. I don't do different worlds. Um, I like it pretty straightforward. Um, and then the historicals, too. But uh, so, you know, it's sometimes hard to just find those good, like, books if you're just searching through page after page after page. And you need recommendations, and that's why sites like your guys' sites are great, because if it, you know, if it feeds that sort of, ooh, that sounds really good, then you can go look for it. 
Thank you. Um, do you look at FBI or, or romantic suspense involving the FBI and think, uh, I can't do that? Or do you, do you go for it when you see them? Is that a genre that you read easily or are you very cautious about picking up any books that involve the FBI? Very cautious. I normally, if I see the word FBI agent in a description, it's really got to have something else that sort of clicks with me because otherwise I just move on. Um, again, as we spoke about earlier, it's just most of them just, they're so, so wrong, at least in my world, that I, I actually, when we started talking, emailing about doing this, I looked on Amazon for some FBI books, just a real quick search, and I pulled up a couple and downloaded either a portion or bought them for like 99 cents, and none of them I could get through basically. <laughs> they were they weren't poorly necessarily written, but just the details. Like one of them in the first chapter. I mean, some of the details just drove me insane. Like the character was an FBI agent. Her mother was a high up FBI agent, and she sent a car to pick up her daughter to bring her to her office. Nobody has a driver in the FBI except the director. Okay. <laughs> They drive their own cars. <laughs> Just little things like that. And she was supposed the mother was supposed to be an assistant to the director, but was in the New York office. All the director's assistants are in Washington, D.C., in the Hoover building, you know, and they're not in New York. Yes, we have high up, you know, people who are high up within the organization in New York, but they run the New York field office. An assistant director in charge and what we call an ADIC, runs the New York field office. That is a very high position within our organization, but it has nothing to do with the director's office. And that's another thing I would like to maybe mention for authors is find out how we are organized because they, t they have all of these uh, small subgroups running out of headquarters. 90% of all investigations take place in our field offices. Headquarters is for management. The one thing I will say that is at headquarters is our hostage rescue team, which was involved in grabbing the guy in Libya last weekend. Um, they were involved. Um, they are out of headquarters. They're actually based at Quantico at, our, at the academy, at the FBI academy at Quantico. But most of investigations are run out of the field. The head headquarters is for managers, and they manage the field. They manage what goes on. They don't actually do investigations. They help the field move their investigations forward, but they don't actually do that. A lot of authors also create all of these secret groups, you know, who, you know, and I guess that's good for tension and uh, sort of story, but they don't exist. I'm sorry. <laughs> we don't have little secret groups, you know, running around. Nobody knows who they are. Um, that's just not the way it is. Another issue that I would hope that I could help some authors out with is authors tend to have people, uh, FBI agents especially, travel to other, other um, say a person is from the Washington field office. They will have them travel to New York to do an interview. And that's traveling into someone else's jurisdiction. Your jurisdiction is in Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia. That's what the, North, the Washington, D.C. field office covers. 
if you have to go to New York, you have to have permission from New York to go into New York and do any investigation. So there's got to be paperwork to do that. There's got to be money to do that. Most of the time you send uh, what we call a lead, you send a request to New York to do it for you. And I understand in fiction you you got to get around some of these things somehow, but authors just make it like so one book I was reading the guy jumped on a plane because he thought his bad guy might show up in Florida and he was from Boston and then he came back and said oh he wasn't there I mean stuff like that just would not happen and I know it's fiction but for those of us who see this every day it, it makes it difficult you know to read stuff like this. Jane do you have any other questions? Yeah what's the last good book you read? That was my question get out, get, get out of my office. <laughs> well, I sat on a beach last week. Oh, that's just horrible. Um, so, um, while I was at the beach, I read Kristen Higgins' Waiting on You, which I think is part of the Blue Heron series. Mm -hmm. Really good. I also read Jennifer Ashley's uh, Lady Isabella's Scandalous Marriage, which, uh, historical, which I really liked. She also writes... Uh, uh, male um, historical fiction um, series also, which I've read and are very good under another name, but I'm not, I can't remember what her other um, author's name is for that series. It's Ashley Gardner. Yes. And yes. And those are very good also. I haven't read all of them, but I've read the first four or five of those. I also listened to um, That Summer by Lauren Willig, who writes the uh, Pink Carnation series. Um, liked it. It's a standalone. Didn't love it. Um, it skips from the mid-Victorian period to current. I like the current story better than the Victorian story, but it dealt with pre-Raphaelite painters, which was very interesting. She always does the history so well in those books, all of her books, because of course she was, um, she has her master's and her PhD in history, um, and does the history very well. And then this week on my commute, I um, have been listening to the uh, Pink Carnation, the last one, the Purple Plumeria. I think it's the Passion of the Purple Plumeria, which is um, was very good. I liked it. It's actually one of my favorite of the Pink Carnation series um, so far. I haven't read that one yet. I get the feeling, though, that eventually she's going to run out of flowers. Um, the, the, there's one out, I was looking at her website last night, um, there's one out in August, and then the last one will be the, um, the Pink Carnation, Jane, um, her story, and that's going to come out, I believe, in the late summer next year. Ooh. You know, if you like historicals, would you like some recommendations of authors that you might like? Yes. Um, you might really like Teresa Romaine's historicals, especially the ones that are published by Kensington. I love them. They're very, very sort of elegant and very opulent writing. You get the sense that even when the scene is moving characters from, you know, point A on the lawn to the other side of the lawn, there's a reason why those scenes and those words are there. Every word is there deliberately. And things that happen in little tiny moments become much, much more important later. And I love when books do that. You might really like her books. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Elle? Is there anything you want to ask, Jane? Well, I did want to add, if you don't mind. Bring uh, it on. Feel free. One of the things that uh, 
Julie James that started this discussion was the interaction between her heroes and her heroines, how they actually could get in serious trouble for their actions. And I find that a lot in police uh, books dealing with police personnel who are like protecting people and even FBI, you know, spy, anything, anyone who is protecting someone, they always end up with the romantic relationship because it's a romance novel. Hold on here. Are you trying to tell me that bodyguards do not regularly fall for the women that they are protecting? They shouldn't. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Practice to fall for your protectee. Yes, the protectee. Um, Just, you know, for sort of information, um, you know, any agent who has a relation, a intimate relationship with a uh, protectee or a source or a um, witness within their case can get in some pretty serious trouble if that is discovered and reported. Um, there are issues, especially with the criminal agents. That yeah, I was going to say not only not only that, but it taints the evidence and his ability to be a witness later on. Absolutely. I have a friend who got in trouble with, uh, it wasn't an intimate relation, but she basically became friends with a source, and it got ugly. And you can have what we call days on the bricks. Our Office of Professional Responsibility reviews these kind of cases, and we call it days on the bricks. And you can have upwards of 30 or 60 days on the bricks, and that means you don't get paid. And that goes in your permanent record, and that has to be turned over to defense attorneys. So she will never be able to get back on the stand in a criminal case. She had to transfer out of criminal investigations into something else where she will not have to be go on the stand because she can never basically go on the stand again without being raked over the coals by a defense attorney. So I understand why this happens for novels, but just sort of FYI, this is not a good thing. <laughs> you can get in a lot of serious trouble with it. And the other thing, like with Julie James, her characters, like who ended up being married, the you know the U.S. attorney marrying an FBI agent, that could cause some serious, probably issues, conflict of interest issues. Also, I mean, for that office, I mean, I'm sure they would get around it, but there are you know everything in romance land. It, sounds a lot easier than it might actually be. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> Another thing is I see a lot of authors make characters like FBI agents, but it doesn't really matter to the story. It's like they're adding in that it's just, a shorthand. Yeah, and it doesn't they have no sense of place about the agent or whatever. It doesn't make any difference. He could have been Joe Schmo almost, but they add in that title to get maybe hook people in but mm-hmm. they I, I don't feel any sense of place where at least at least with Julie James I did feel like those guys were real agents real agents and, and had they, a reason for being so yes and the other thing in the latest book and I really appreciated was there's a scene in the book where Vaughn the agent is talking about his past and where he worked with crimes against children And here I could tell she had talked to an actual FBI agent because he talks about how it hurt basically his soul. And he 
didn't like that feeling and didn't want to have children and needed to get out of that work and to get some healing to move on. And those words could have come out of the mouth of a friend of mine. He actually is back doing it again. And um, that just rang so true with me. And just little tidbits like that just make it so much more real, I think, because that I could hear that just coming out of an agent's mouth because I've heard it before. It's sort of like when every person in the, in the military is a Navy SEAL. Um, I, I did an interview with someone who had served in the Army, and, and she made the point that, you know, not everyone is elite services. Not everyone is a high-end, um, super, super trained, you know, uh, specialist. Not everyone is a Navy SEAL. There are plenty of people who are in the military, like you said, who do support positions, who work behind the scenes, who aren't the ones who are on TV, who do some really neat stuff. But, you know, everyone in, in a romantic suspense, there's a serial killer. Everyone's an FBI agent. Every regency has about 85 dukes. There's all Navy SEALs. Um, someone's a vampire. The, the, the established shorthand for characters is something that makes me nuts, too. So I completely understand your frustration with that. Though I will say I, I do love Navy SEAL books. <laughs> yeah, I can totally understand that. Because they're kind of amazing. I'm a, Sus I'm a huge Suzanne Brockman fan. Um, from way back, you know, and that sort of got me into the whole Navy SEAL thing. So I, th I'm drawn to those books, but now there's so many. I, you do have to be sort of careful because, again, you just make them a Navy SEAL and it's supposed to make everything all right for your novel and it doesn't always work out and it that doesn't way. And it doesn't add anything to the character. It's a, it's a shorthand characterization. Yes. And that's all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did while we were recording. I was pretty much vibrating in my seat. I thought it was so interesting and I learned a ton. Even though I don't usually read romantic suspense or books with FBI agents, I thought that was wonderfully interesting. I really hope you enjoyed it too. I want to thank Elle for taking a lot of time to talk with us and for explaining so many things that I had no idea about. This podcast is brought to you by New American Library, publisher of Riding the Wave, Lorelai Brown's sexy new Pacific Blue novel on sale now. And I will tell you that at RT, Lorelai Brown's promotional item were little bottles of sunscreen with a hook on the top of the bottle so you could hook it onto a bag. They're awesome, like one of the best promo items ever. So when I saw the sponsor tag, and text for this particular book. I was like, oh, it's the sunscreen book. Never let it be said that good promo doesn't work. Because good promo, when you're keeping me from getting a sunburn, totally works. The music this week was provided by Sassy Outwater. This week's music is Calgary Caper by the Pete Bog Fairies. This is from their album Dust, which you can find at their website, on iTunes, at Amazon. You can find it all over the place. And everyone needs more Pete Bog. It's like a law, right? Totally. We are still working on our Books for Young Readers recommendations, and we have so many awesome suggestions already. If you would like to add yours, or if you want to have a comment or a question answered, you want to have a moment to yell at Jane that she's wrong about something, I totally support this idea, and somewhere right now she's rolling her eyes at me. You can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com, or you can call our Google Voice number, 1-201-371-DBSA. Please don't forget to give us your name and where you're calling from so we can include your messages in upcoming podcasts. 
We have feeds for the podcast all over the place. We're on iTunes. You can subscribe to the direct feed through the website. You can subscribe during podcast pickle. I still don't know who names these things. And we're also on Stitcher Radio, which I have heard is pretty rad and is a fun service to use. However you are listening and whatever you are doing, thank you for listening. Jane and Elle and I wish you the very best of reading. <laughs>